Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to an, uh, another session of uh, SACPA. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day, and in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today we have with us uh, Dr. Peter Kellett from the University of Lethbridge. He will be speaking on the topic of multiple marginalizations, masculinity and militias, how a grief masculinity is playing an intersectional role in the politics of division. Dr. Kellett is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Lethbridge and a research affiliate of the Prentice Institute for Global Population and Economy. His research program focuses on the impacts of social inequalities, gender, and migration of health and populations, with a particular focus on the role of masculinities and intersectional social inequalities play in men's mental health and well-being. Thank you for joining us today, Peter, and look very much look forward to your talk. Thank you very much, Annalise, uh, and thank you, Sagpa, for inviting me to do the talk. Um, first, before I get going on the presentation, I'd, I'd like to start with a few caveats. Um, to talk about this topic, uh, we really have to take a multidisciplinary approach because it's a complicated topic. So although I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, information from a lot of different areas of study, I'm, I'm certainly not an economist, I'm not a historian or a political scientist, nor am I necessarily an expert on extremism or militias, but I have read very widely in these areas. And the points that I am including in this presentation today are certainly informed by evidence and scholarship in these areas. What I have studied extensively in the past few years is the role that intersecting uh, social hierarchies and gender play in health and well-being and how intersectional social location influences mental health and well-being, especially in men. While masculinities and aggrieved masculinities play a part in the current socio-political environment of countries like the US and Canada, I would also like to emphasize that they are not single contributors in and of themselves. Rather, there's a complex interaction between masculinities and other areas of marginalization, which frequently plays a role. Um, finally, while I talk a lot about aggrieved masculinities and aggrieved white masculinities in particular, it would be incorrect to say that only white men are players in the current political context of countries like the US. There are women, people of color, and other marginalized individuals that are supporters of, of uh, leaders like Trump and other populists. And militias also have racialized members and women among their ranks. However, the face of these movements remains overwhelmingly male and white, which is why I'm emphasizing these elements in this presentation. I also would like to upfront give a nod to the scholarship of Michael Kimmel, who's a sociologist who's spent a lot of time studying uh, American masculinities, and particularly the issue of rising anger amongst white men in the US. And uh, with that, I would like to get going on the presentation. So if we could click the slide, please. So in order to understand the current situation, we do need to sort of look at the historical and sociopolitical backdrop in which our current situation lies. Certainly the US 
and I'm talking about the U.S. today as a as an example. We could certainly apply a lot of the same things to other countries as well, but the U.S. is certainly one that's in the forefront of our consciousness right now. But certainly the U.S. is formed on the idea of independence uh, with a pervasive culture of individualism. And it's also a country that is not really healed from a lot of rifts that have already uh, been uh, you know, that have been caused in history. So there was failed reconstruction followed the Civil War, and some of these divisions were never resolved. In fact, we still see uh, many people still talking about the Confederate cause as a just cause. Another thing we need to also keep in mind about the U.S. context is that it has pervasive em emphasis on free market principles and neoliberal policy, almost to the point that it's almost like a religious belief. And this has contributed to growing inequality in the U.S., which is a major factor at play here that I'm going to talk about today. Fear of government control, socialism, and communism is also deeply embedded in the American psyche. Um, and if we think about the Cold War and the McCarthy era, a lot of people in leadership live through those time periods. And there's, there's a terrible fear of the term socialism in the U.S. context. But... Directly related to the issue of masculinities and how this intersects is really getting into the idea of the ideology of the American dream, which is certainly very pervasive uh, in, in the way Americans talk about their country. The idea of the American dream is that it's a meritocracy, that anybody can make it, and that success is going to be based on hard work, and upward mobility will always be present. The mythical wife, kids, car, and a house with a white picket fence, which is increasingly becoming more uh, difficult for people to attain. And certainly achieving these, this success uh, is also highly linked to masculinities. And American masculinities are, are certainly aligned with general Western hegemonic masculinities. And the term hegemonic masculinities really speaks to the idea of masculinities that support patriarchal dominance. Um, and central to hegemonic masculinities is the idea for among a lot of men that they have to be the breadwinner uh, for their household. There's also in the history of American masculinity been a pervasive trope of the self-made man, the person who can do it on their own, who, who reaches success. Michael Kimmel in his uh, history of uh, masculinity in the United States context referred to the history of masculinity in the U.S. as a history of anxiety and restlessness. And really, if you think about the fact that um, these men are always trying to achieve, they're always trying to do better, you can see why they'd be restless. If we could click the slide, please. So, um, the American dream is certainly one of those things which is present, but it's kind of flickering. Uh, and not always clear to everybody how they're going to achieve it. If we could click again, please. There are a lot of things that are affecting this American dream. There's rising income inequality. There's an erosion of trust in society, which is increasing divisions, which is highly linked to income inequality. There have been events like the 2008 financial crash, which certainly impacted everybody um, but corporate corporations got bailouts, but there wasn't very much help for the average person. And so a lot of people felt abandoned by their government. 
globalization has played a major role in the past few decades as uh, you know, engaging in the global market basically led to more and more manufacturing being done offshore in other countries and people losing jobs. Um, and so there's been a decline in manufacturing and resource economy in the United States. It's also been a move to the knowledge and tech economy, which have left many people, many men feeling left behind. Mega corporations like the Walmarts, the Amazons, they've also dominated the marketplace. And this has further limited employment options for people and caused the closure of smaller businesses and and kind of gutted the economic well-being of a lot of locations. Certainly, we don't have to look far to see that American politics in recent decades has certainly been rife with political corruption. And, and a paralysis of being able to actually move forward as there's been huge divisions uh, in terms of control of the House and the Senate and uh, the role of the president in order to move things forward. There's also been an erosion of unions and decreased income and benefits for a lot of people. So if we could just click the slide again, please. Um, so what we're basically seeing is that for most Americans, uh, the American dream has faded away. And what has replaced it is a, our feelings of disillusionment, frustration, feeling abandoned, despair, isolation, anxiety, and sadness and depression. And all of these things underlie feelings of fear and anger. And this is really what's fueling, in many ways, some of the political divisions that we're seeing. If we could click the slide, please. So when we look at this slide, we can sort of see how income inequality has, has grown over time. And very few countries have the same degree of income inequality as the United States, although certainly we see countries like the UK also quite high in Canada, certainly income inequality is going up as well. Now, the issue with income inequality is, is that we see that um, middle and lower income households are having less of a share of the income in society, um, while the upper income bracket is taking an increasing share. Um, if we can click the slide, please. Uh, so there's also a gap in wealth between the upper income and middle and lower income families. Um, so the upper income group representing about 79% of the aggregate wealth in the U.S., while the middle income group only has about 17%, which declined, and the lower income group has only 4%. So there's an increasing sense of hopelessness amongst a lot of Americans in these middle and lower income groups um, because they basically are seeing that their real income, their real wealth has declined. So I think I, if we could click the slide, please, Annalise, I'm concerned that I may have skipped a slide without <laughs> without you. I should be on the slide that says levels of trust are higher amongst more equal US states. Okay, so 
this graph that I'm showing you um, is from the work of Wilkinson and Pickett, who are UK academics that wrote a book called The Spirit Level in 2009. And they looked at the effect that income inequality had on society. And one of the things that they uh, showed was that the higher income inequality is in society, the more uh, we see trust declining in society. And so people answering the question more, most people can be trusted, the percent answering that will decrease as income inequality goes up. As a matter of interest, I, I just decided to put the red and blue states uh, on this. And in the US, um, we can see that certainly the ones who voted Democrat tend to have a little higher sense of trust on the whole, although it's not universal by any means. And I also thought it was kind of interesting that when we look at the ones in the middle, um, the Arizonas, the Pennsylvanias, uh, these were the, the the swing states in the election. They're kind of in the middle. And we also see um, Missouri and, and other places in Massachusetts in this area as well, all swing states. So you can sort of see why they may be swinging back and forth a little bit in terms of their sense of trust and, and uh, happiness with the way things go. If we could click the slide, please. Now... To get back to the idea of masculinities in this presentation, um, Michael Kimmel has done a lot of work talking about uh, aggrieved white masculine entitlement. Now, certainly, entitlement is is uh, part of a lot of masculine presentations, not just those who are white, because patriarchy has created a sense of entitlement. And, and I think if you ask a lot of men, they would not necessarily say that they feel entitled. But the problem is that they privilege is invisible to those who have it. And so they don't always realize that these things are embedded in the way they interact with the world. So men, especially white men, uh, sometimes feel they're entitled to a certain degree of success and status. And we sometimes refer to this as the patriarchal dividend. In the U.S. context, this means they feel they're entitled to the American dream, to the opportunity to work for a really good wage and be able to be the breadwinner for their family and that they should have the possibility of upward mobility and success because this is what they've been told uh, should be their reality. The problem is, is as we've already seen, the, the American dream is not really materializing. And so a lot of these men are feeling aggrieved about these promises not materializing. So if they're not getting a good job, then, then somebody's taking it away from them. And so it might be women, minorities, immigrants, that's their perception. If they're not achieving success and someone's preventing their success, so maybe it's government, affirmative action policies, it could be globalization of trade policies which cause jobs to leave their country. And there's a shift away from traditional industries and skills, and they feel very frustrated by that. Now, certainly, we, we're talking about the U.S. Uh, context here, but we could apply the same thing to Canada or other countries as well that are, are experiencing similar shifts. But among these men, because they've been told America is a meritocracy, 
their perceived failure to succeed is often interpreted by them as humiliation. And so they feel very frustrated by their situation. And this is where we get into this aggrieved sense of If we could click the slide, please. So although these men are still often holding relatively more power than many in society, they still feel like victims and they long for the past when they were on top. Kimmel refers to this as wind chill psychology. It doesn't really matter what the real temperature is, it's what, it, what matters is what it feels like. And certainly in all the research looking at how social inequalities affect health and well-being, we know that it's not really about someone's absolute standing in a hierarchy, it's what they perceive their location is. Um, because it affects them directly. If we could click the slide, please. So who are the targets of their anger? Well, certainly in the US, there's a big emphasis on big government because they've been told that big government will drive away jobs and they will associate it with bureaucracy, inaction and intrusive regulation in their mind, like gun legislation or affirmative action. The big question in their mind is, what has government done to help them? They don't really see the benefit from taxes. Nothing is really coming back to help them. They feel abandoned. There's been a lot of talk, especially in the era of Trump, of liberal elites. Those with education and power who they feel put down or controlled by. And certainly women are often the target as well because there's a perception among some of these men that feminism and women's rights have contributed to an erosion of their own influence and status in the work, social, and domestic sphere. Um, but again, we have to keep in mind that this is a relative experience. It's less than they had before. It doesn't mean necessarily that they are always being marginalized in all cases. In terms of immigrants, uh, they perceive that immigration is creating unfair competition for jobs and that the tax dollars are being used to support immigrants more than they get supported. Again, a lot of these are based on, on unclear and, and shaky foundations, um, but it's still something that affects them. Affirmative action and diversity policies make, means that some of these individuals feel they're losing out on work or somehow that they're discriminated against. And certainly we see these kind of comments in you know, in reactions to movements like Black Lives Matter, you know, when people are saying things like all lives matter. Globalization and trade, um, they're angry about this because they've, there's been a collapse of traditionally good playing work in manufacturing, mining, resource harvesting, and there's really been the birth of the Rust Belt, which has been very much the center of support for, uh, for Republicans, particularly Trump. If we could click the slide, please. So the big question I think a lot of us ask when we wonder, you know, where does all the support for Donald Trump come from? Well, I think once we look at things in the context of some of the things we've talked about, it starts to make a lot of sense. The Make America Great Again uh, idea really draws on the longing for the past simpler times, when often these men felt like they were successful and on top. But not just men, just people in general who felt that they were doing better at that point in time. Certainly, 
Trump's populist message appeals to his base who want less government and hate the elites. He tells angry Americans that their perspective matters. And he says things out loud that they want to say. He also sells himself as a self-made man, which obviously, if, if you do any diving into Trump's background, is a little questionable, but he, he certainly promotes himself that way, and so he's the man they want to be. It's, Trump's reality TV past has played a role in this because they've seen him on TV. They feel like they know him. And he's also the Twitter president. And he's, he seems more accessible to them because sometimes he even tells his base things, that policy decisions, before he even tells his administration. And they feel like they have access to him because they can reply to his tweets. Social media has played a huge role in this as well, in general, because social media algorithms have also created a polarizing of what people have access to um, in terms of information. If you believe in certain political views, the algorithms will show you more posts related to those political views, so it feels like everybody agrees with you. Um, I think some other things to keep in mind about Trump is he doesn't act like the politicians they're used to. He positions himself as battling the liberal elites. And, and I think in many ways his non-intellectual, anti-science, politically incorrect approach really disassociates him from these elites. He also put a lot of emphasis on draining the swamp during his initial campaign. And his protectionist anti-trade message gives them hope of a return to past success. His anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment also responds to their fears. So in, in the days following the recent election, uh, Anthony Scaramucci uh, was interviewed on Power and Politics. Um, and he was one of Trump's uh, press people for a brief while. And he described Trump as the avatar for these marginalized Americans' anger. And I thought that was a very powerful statement because really he's the figurehead that is saying what they want said. If we could click the slide, please. He's also very pro-Second Amendment and seems to be supporting militias. Now, there's definitely an increasing visibility of militias in the U.S., although they've always existed to some degree or another. There's a perception among some marginalized Americans that the ideals and values of the United States are under attack by outsiders or, and or an oppressive government that's thwarting their success and ignoring their problems. And this anxiety and fear is directed toward perceived threats to the traditional order and values like immigration, especially Muslim immigrants, increased taxation, trade agreements that undermine the success of some Americans. And so the formation of these militias is really uh, hearkening back to the foundational times of the U.S., uh, where they, they feel that the government is oppressive and that they fear that uh, another civil war may be imminent. So these militia members basically feel that they need to embrace their Second Amendment rights to bear arms and protect themselves, but also protect the Constitution, 
protect their Western Christian values and to be ready to potentially take up arms against an oppressive government, which was one of the things that certainly was raised as a reason for the Second Amendment when it was created. Militias, though, are very complex and diverse, as are their membership. They are often loosely affiliated. And while, while they're often dismissed as racist groups, and certainly some many members of these groups do have racist uh, undertones. What underpins their existence really is anxiety, fear, and anger, particularly of government control, and fear of socialism and communism. Plus, I think it's also important that to keep in mind that these militias also give isolated and marginalized people a sense of community and support and brotherhood which is perhaps why militias have a large representation of ex-military individuals who are often feeling abandoned after they come back from fighting in overseas wars. And certainly amongst men, uh, there's often lack of social support. If we could click the next slide, please. So on this slide, you'll see pictures of different militias, some we've heard a lot about. Um, like the Proud Boys who are up in the top left in the black and yellow and then the bottom left. Certainly there are older groups like the KKK, which certainly may not always be called a militia, but certainly has some militia-like elements. And on the bottom right, we see um, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, North Carolina. It, it's striking as you look down this line of people that it's pretty much universally male and white. In the center and the bottom, we see a member of the 3% movement who are part of the bigger militias. And at the top, we see the Boogaloo Boys, who are probably the most concerning of all the groups because they are actively agitating for a civil war. Also, almost universally white and male and young. Interestingly, though, I think it's important to recognize that not everybody who's in these groups is necessarily white, nor are they necessarily male in all groups. The top left there, the person you see there who's basically one of the main leaders of the Proud Boys in Florida, he's of Cuban-American background, and he's really about fighting uh, against government control and socialism in his mind. But... The Proud Boys are a group which definitely show their ties to masculinity as they describe themselves as Western chauvinists. Um, they are promoting not only uh, chauvinism towards Western perspectives, but there's also in their tenets a lot of nods to masculinity, dominance, patriarchy, uh, and things like that. If we could click the slide, please. So I think... Something to keep in mind, though, is that men's sadness, despair, uh, often presents as anger and violence. Carol Gilligan, a psychologist, said the hallmarks of loss are idealization and rage, and under the rage, immense sadness. If you click again, please. Okay. So the masculine presentation of depression. Um, it's something that I've studied a lot in the past few years. Um, and men's presentation of sadness and depression tends to come in two groups of symptoms. 
One group is acting in symptoms, which tend to be the ones that we think more of when we think of depression and sadness, things like avoidance and withdrawal, maybe uh, moving into addictions, things like that. But the ones that are more uniquely related to traditional masculinities are violence, anger, risk-taking, even engagement in crime, and I argue suicide, where violence is turned inward. Now, these acting out behaviors are basically are linked to protest masculinities. Now, protest masculinities are when a man feels subordinated, and so he engages in a, a hyper-masculine performance in order to uh, say, not only am I masculine, I'm more masculine than you. And so men have often placed greater emphasis on dealing with problems instrumentally. They focus on action over discussion. And so you can see how this feeds into things like militia movements and, and other things. If we could click the slide, please. Now, we also, um, you might also ask yourself, like, why are those who support Trump also anti-lockdown, anti-mask wearing, or for that matter, even anti-climate change. Again, it draws on the theme of government control, the idea of you can't tell me what to do. It also rejects the knowledge and perspectives of elites, people from the medical world, science, who might control them. Some of the men are rejecting masks as part of their performance of masculinities because they're tough, they're invincible, and they don't want to look scared or worried. And certainly, even as I walk around Lethbridge, I see fewer men wearing masks than women. But more than anything, it's really fear that's driving this. The lockdowns will financially crush them when they're already in a vulnerable and marginalized position and prevent them from being able to achieve the success that they want to achieve and their and acceptable forms of hegemonic masculinity. It certainly doesn't help that their leaders also use the strategy of denial to keep the economy open to misdirect from his own administration's mishandling of the pandemic and has drawn on tropes of American ingenuity in directing the blame on others like China. If we could click the slide, please. So I've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time, um, but I'd like to just give you some takeaway messages. Aggrieved masculinity is but one of the multiple contributors to political divisions. It's certainly a, a player, um, but there are a lot of other things uh, influencing it. I would like to also say that the desire to deliver an acceptable social performance of masculinity causes men in a state of emotional distress and anxiety to turn to protest performances of, of masculinity and often engage in angry and aggressive behavior while this also fuels concurrent challenges like addictions. Individuals who live in precarious circumstances are also liable to follow leaders who play on their emotions and promise to make things good for them again. And so this feeds into populism. It feeds into following demagogues like Donald Trump. We should also avoid oversimplifying the motivations of those supporting the message of populist leaders and sweepingly referring to followers as racists, rednecks, fascists, or deplorables. In many ways, when Hillary Clinton referred to Trump's followers as deplorable, she probably made a very big strategic error because she fed into that idea of elites trying to put them down. 
not all of the people who are part of these movements are racist. They're not all rednecks. They're not all fascists. But they are people who have fear. They have people who are, are concerned about their situation and they feel frustrated and powerless in many ways. So the final point I'm leaving you with is I think that leaders are going to have to listen to the origins of this anxiety, anger, and fear and attempt to understand and address these concerns if they're going to try and heal some of these political divisions. So with that, I'm going to clue up because I think I've already gone over time. So thank you very much for listening to me today. Thanks, Peter. That was really excellent. Um, very enjoyable presentation. We've got, um, I'm going to just jump right into the questions, if that's okay. Um, sure. And we start with Beth Mundell. Thanks so much, Peter, for the clarification of anger against women, big government and socialism. So the NDP in Alberta would appear to be a perfect target. How can this be changed? Well, I think that what we're seeing in Alberta parallels some of the situations we're seeing in the U.S. Again, because I think that what's happening in terms of the economy in Alberta is really beyond the control of government in many ways. Uh, there's a lot of external forces. So I think that the NDP, like any progressive political approach, uh, would need to try and attend to the fact that people are losing their livelihoods. People are struggling. And and I do think actually they've done a reasonably good uh, job of messaging some of that. They've certainly departed from some of the traditional NDP stances on a few things uh, when they were in power and have looked to try and support those in the, in the oil and gas industry, for example, and other groups. I think the tough part is getting people to realize that really those glory days that they had are probably not going to come back. And I think it's a really hard message for a lot of people to hear. Um, and so I think it's going to take some gentleness in their approach um, and sort of recognizing that although it's really frustrating when you have people shouting at you uh, and directing a lot of anger towards you, it really is coming from a place of of sadness and hopelessness and, and frustration. And, and if we were in their position, we probably would feel the same way too. It's easy for people like me in a university to be, say we want ag aggressive action on climate change. We want aggressive action on, on lockdowns because I'm not gonna be as affected by it. But the person who's counting on, on on some of these industries or actions um, are, is going to have a, a huge impact on their lives. So I, I think, I hope I answered your question. Bev's got a follow-up question. Is Trump the Don Quixote of this anger? Um, I, think, I think Trump is definitely I think I think his non-politically correct approach is, is just appealing to a lot of people because I think they're so frustrated that by having uh, Trump out there saying these things and telling them that their perspectives matter, um, it definitely he serves as kind of a rallying point for people, and and I kind of kind of get the impression that not everybody necessarily likes everything about him, but. 
they do feel that he's at least doing something in their mind. Because for the person who's lost their job because of manufacturing, the fact that he's being protectionist and trying to lay waste to all these trade agreements and engaging on a global stage, that seems like a move in the right direction for them. For the person who feels that they can't get a job and they perceive that it's due to competition from people coming from other countries, his anti-immigration ban makes sense to them. The trouble is that basically it's it's failing to recognize the real reasons for some of these things, which is basically rising inequality related to capitalism, unrestrained capitalism, should I say, rather than than capitalism alone and unregulated capitalism. So, yeah, he's definitely their their figurehead. Okay. Our next question comes from Jessia. Within the context of Alberta, we're seeing the rise of soldiers of Odin and related splinter groups such as the urban infidels. What aspects of life in Alberta have led to this alienation slash grief? Well, I think I think there's numerous things. It would be wrong to point to one. I think our economic circumstances have changed. And I think we've moved from a place where a lot of men were making lots of money um, and you know, sometimes without having to have a huge amount of education to, to get into that, to a situation where now people are losing work, they don't really have many options. That, I think, is feeding into it. I think that we're seeing a rise of a lot of uh, anger and violence in men in Alberta and in other places as well re related to these situations. For example, since the economic downturn, we've seen a lot more family violence as well. Um, and and so I really think a lot of it is is fueled by sadness and anxiety and and other things. I do think too that the the environment of Alberta shifted very rapidly. I mean, I've lived in Alberta now for since 2006, and I've seen a huge diversification of the population in that time. And so I think some people are perceiving the diversification of the population as being linked to their decline in their situation. I don't think that the evidence really bears out to that, but it's, it's a perception. And I also think that we also have strong, deep ties to Christianity in Alberta. And, and I think part of that uh, fear of migration is that somehow those Christian values that have been dominant in Alberta society are somehow going to be eroded by bringing people in with other faith groups. And I think the, there's been a lot of emphasis, particularly on Muslim immigrants, but I think uh, I think that's just one, one rallying point. So Michael Kimmel's done a lot of research looking at hate groups um, and basically the men who tend to get attracted to these hate groups are people who've been marginalized, people who want a sense of belonging. Um, and, and that's what some of these groups give them, um, just like any kind of gang situation. Um, so I think, I think all these things are feeding into it. Okay. 
Um, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. It could be argued that the very entities that have caused their grievances, example 2008 crash, appear to be the very people slash parties these individuals slash groups support. Can you comment on this paradox? Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think that's one of the real ironies of supporting uh, Donald Trump uh, is that people like Trump are the reason why they're in the situation they're in. Um, and really, it's about it's about unrestrained capitalism, and it's really it's really related to um, an ideology over reality. And certainly, this this free market ideology is so prominent in the U.S. It's it's like I said in the presentation, it's almost like a religion. And we know those of us who studied economics at all, or or we looked at any of the research, we know that trickle down economics is a myth. Mm-hmm. We know that it doesn't happen. Yet people are still hanging on to that idea, and Trump is still promoting those kind of ideas that we need to cut taxes to the rich because it'll create jobs, that we're going to cut taxes to corporations that will create jobs. It doesn't create jobs. It just makes them richer. And this is leading to more division. And so I think a lot of it is people just not really understanding the full picture and the fact that they have been told that socialism is bad, that any kind of government control is bad. And I think it really feeds into that U.S. context in particular of fierce independence. I mean, it's a country that was formed uh, based on the idea of taxation, no taxation without representation. And and uh, I think that that has been kind of an underlying theme ever since. Okay, Um, next question is from Colleen Quintel. Why did Trump's strategy of simply ignoring accusations, such as when he was caught on tape on the bus disparaging women on, or his friendship with Epstein, work so well for him? His base forgave him, and then I think somebody commented on this, Jesse commented on this, saying, I think part of that goes back to their distrust of elites and the media. They just read those narratives as left-wing hit jobs with no basis in reality. Well, I think I think that uh, Donald Trump, for everything that I've learned about him, he's definitely a salesman. He's very good at selling certain things, and one of his strategies that's worked very well for him is to create spin and denial around things um and and i think that um i may be wrong but i i would believe i think that a lot of his uh followers um do see him as an imperfect person i think in many ways that's what appeals to to them about him um I think that for some of the men who feel that somehow feminism or, you know, equity politics has undermined their status, I think they're probably not too concerned about this. And I think this ties into the the comment that was made there around this argument that it's just left-wing elites that are are trying to discredit this person who is is trying to lead us to to success. I think it's very complicated and for for most of us when we watch it especially from outside of the u.s we just shake our heads and we just can't understand why people would believe it 
But I do think that this idea of deny and create chaos is one of Trump's key key strategies. It's all about winning at all costs. And he doesn't really care how that happens. Okay. Uh, Knut asked a question, but then he realized you'd already commented on it in your talk, but he says maybe you can comment further. And Knut Peterson's question is, it seems like COVID-19 has empowered Trump's base even more. And it shows in their defiance of of adhering to public policy in fighting this pandemic. Can you comment, please? Um, I think I think that COVID has created an opportunity to to fight against government control again. Uh, and and again, I think it really is, as I said in the presentation, I think it's really fed by fear uh, around. You know, because the people who are going to not have money are the ones who are often in the lower job categories, the people who don't have protections. So for them, it's it's a matter of survival. So they're fighting against um, lockdowns, and and they prefer to take a position of denial because it it just in the short term supports their well-being and survival, even though it might not support their survival in the long run. And certainly there have been psychologists who've done studies which say the human human brain is basically um, wired for what they perceive as imminent threats, not long-term threats. And so if you're worried about feeding yourself today or tomorrow, that's going to trump any worry of a potential infection later down the road. And this is also one of the reasons why there's been some arguments around climate change as to why people focus on, well, I care about being able to get you know, drive makes my life easier. I care about uh, being employed right now. So my worry of some potential catastrophe later on uh, is is not going to be forefront in my mind. And so I think I think that's part of it. And I think it, in many ways, it was weaponized a little bit by by this the groups who are sort of fighting against um, the liberal elites. Let's say who are arguing contrary. But I think as I prepare for this presentation, I say liberal elites, what are they talking They're often talking about highly educated people, people who maybe have better, better jobs or status related to that. And one thing that was very clear in the 2016 election of Trump was that those who voted for him tended to have lower education. They tended to be people uh, without university level education. Uh, whereas those who were university educated tended not to vote for him. And I think we'd probably see a similar approach. And so it's all part of, I think, of that feeling of not not feeling valued. That somehow, you know, the world has moved on my skills are not valued anymore, but we value education. We value value this knowledge economy that I'm not really part of. Our next question comes from uh, Greg. Donald Trump has cheated everyone he has ever dealt with. Why should the American people believe they won't be treated the same? Cheat me once, shame on me. Cheat me twice, shame on me. Well, I wouldn't disagree with you, Greg, at all. I mean, I think, 
I think the problem is that uh, Trump has done a really good job in, in the past few decades of creating this mystique around himself and selling himself as this successful person. And, and I think really when he was on The Apprentice, that was really his whole whole image thing. He's always trying to sell himself. He always uses hyperbolic language. He's always talking about things being fabulous and wonderful and great. Uh, everything he does is great. It's the best thing ever. And I think if you look at the surface of what he says, it sounds like you could be you could be fooled for a while to say, oh, he seems like a successful guy. I think if you do some digging down, as as many people have done in recent years, you can see that it's really a house of cards. Uh, it's he's had multiple bankruptcies. He's obviously avoiding taxes. <laughs> he's he's not that successful. Uh, reading Mary Trump's book, his niece's book, is very interesting. I mean, she went to write a book about him, and actually she started hanging around the office. She couldn't even figure out what he actually did. Um, and I think, I think it's all about creating the sense of a figurehead of himself. And, and I don't think there's necessarily substance. And I think the problem is a lot of people go with the, the image. And I really do think that, um, unfortunately, one of the real downsides to the movement to the internet and to multi-channel cable news and all these things is that it creates it creates an environment to, to prop up these falsehoods and it also you know and the polarizing uh, polarization of politics is highly influenced by some of these these algorithms that basically say if you're reading right-wing stuff, we're just going to give you more right-wing stuff. Just like if you're reading left-wing stuff, you're going to get more left-wing stuff. So it's 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 a real mess. <laughs> um, Laura Schultz, historian Kathleen Ballou, discusses that the white power movement is no longer structured in the same way that KKK was slash is. Can you comment? Yeah, I... I can comment a bit. Like I said, I'm not an expert on uh, on white power groups or extremist groups in, in any form, but I think that what's happened is, especially with the internet, is that these groups have become way more uh, diffuse uh, and loosely affiliated. People are, are connecting online. Uh, they're being rallied together online. And unfortunately, I think one of the problems with the online environment is, is sometimes where someone might have had kind of a, a crazy idea to themselves. He might have only had access to two or three people in the past. Now he has potentially access to a much larger audience. And with the advent of, of uh, you know, YouTube content or, or podcasts or... You know, even the creation of deep fakes, uh, you can make videos look like somebody saying things that they're not. And so I think this is these are the strategies and that it's become less about a group of men who get together and some some one, one location and much more about about disaffected people. Uh, connecting online and certainly some areas like 4chan which is an image board uh, is 
is one of the areas these groups meet. And and certainly some of the things that have come up, like the QAnon conspiracy that's played such a big part in U.S. politics recently, that originated in 4chan. Um, and other masculinity-related things, like at the incels, the involuntary celibates, the, these men who feel that somehow they're being uh, forced to... Um, to be celibate because women won't have sex with them and that it's all part of part of their manipulation uh, of feminism and all these sort of things it's all sort of in the same vein um, so I, I went off on a tangent there I apologize it's good um, Bob Mundell with Trump calling the election results fake he's feeding the anger how can that be cooled that's a tough one. Um, I think it might be a little bit out of my expertise, but I think I think all that people can do is to keep directing directing people to the facts. I think a lot of people, I think, are trying to figure this out and figure his strategy out right now. And and I've heard a couple of interesting theories about it. Um, in the news in the last few days. And I think one of them is, is that the Republicans are really reluctant to alienate his base right now because they need to count on them. And so they're sort of supporting this line um, because they really, they don't, don't want to lose those Republican voters. Um, I think that there's genuine fear of Donald Trump's vindictiveness among some people as well, because he definitely wields a fair bit of power. Uh, and, and I, I think that's at play. There's also been a lot of theories that they're, they're basically just trying to placate him <laughs> in the short term um, while he comes to terms with it. Uh, but I think it's probably more the first answer than the thing. Um, I think that they're worried about a splintering. I mean, the Republican Party is in trouble. It's had divisions in the last few years, whether it was the Tea Party movement and now Trumpism. And... And there's a danger, I think, that if they lose those individuals, that that Trump could come back with his own political party or do something else separately. Uh, and and I think I think he's really trying to hang on to those those followers. Um, and uh, so I think that this is all part of the strategy. Okay, our next. Question goes from Jim Miller. Is there a link between aggrieved masculinity and men who physically and or emotionally abuse their spouses? Absolutely. Um, I've, I studied men's mental health and I think that uh, one, of the, one of the key things to keep in mind is that men's social support networks are often much shallower than women's. And so research has shown that men tend to depend on the women in their lives for their emotional support. So I know this sounds very contradictory, but I think what happens is sometimes is that these men, when they're feeling depressed or they're struggling, if the relationship is not going well or the woman is pulling away uh, or they don't feel that they're getting the respect that they deserve as men in the family, they sometimes turn to violence. I'm not saying this is any excuse for this violence, but I definitely think it fuels it. And I think that when you get 
um, if they feel somehow that they're going to lose that woman, then they will often um, they'll double down on trying to control that person because they they're they're in a kind of a desperate state. It's it's a totally messed up strategy, um, and I don't approve of it at all. But I do think that. In my opinion, I think that depression and sadness in men is a huge societal issue we have right now, um, and that I, th I think that if we don't address men's emotional health better as a society and socialize men uh, to say that it's okay to reach out for support, it's okay to... to um, show affection to one another as men it's okay to to uh to ask for help then we're going to see more and more of these issues turning up okay we've got quite a few questions left um the next question is from jim miller uh, there's a trial just starting in toronto for men for a man who killed women driving a van on the sidewalks and he claims he was an incel would you consider incel part of the aggrieved masculinity group? Absolutely. Uh, incels are definitely part of this. And we actually see uh, some of these narratives in a lot of school shooters as well, um, where you get these young men who somehow have been uh, marginalized, sometimes in their perception related to women. Certainly there was a guy, his name escapes me right now in California, who shot a lot of people on a university campus he, and his writings leading up to that was definitely leaning towards the incel uh, way and yeah so I could actually talk about this for ages and I know there's a lot of questions but yeah I would definitely see a link okay Alina um, McNeil thank you for your excellent talk um, Mark Guttall to what extent do you feel that these domineering men badger or brainwash their spouses to see the world their way, to vote their way, etc. Oh, I think there's an element of that. I mean, I, I, I do think though that I think a lot of the women are also feeling abandoned uh, and frustrated by their situation. So I don't think it's always that the men are are bullying them into it. But certainly, if there's in a situation where there's family, you know, family violence, domestic violence and domineering, then that may be playing a part. Um, and so it's hard to say. I think I think there may be some cases of that. I, I do think, though, that it's really interesting when you start looking at things like militias and other groups, and even Trump. I mean, I think one of the people that, one of the things people have really marveled at is why so many women have supported Trump uh, with all the things that have gone on. And I think, again, it's because there's still a feeling of abandonment. There's still a feeling of frustration and even anger um, that is resonating with them. Uh, Kurt Peterson, what would, what would you advise, what would your advice to Joe Biden be if he gets to be president? We how to convince at least part of the Trump supporters that life after Trump can be just and fair. Well, again, it's a tough one. I think Biden is starting off well and that he's trying to reach to you know broach the divide and saying he's going to be everybody's president but i think 
I think that he's going to have to show these individuals that he's actually listening to them and caring about their their worries. It's a bit of a, a losing battle, though, because I think in some ways some of the things people want to hang on to are going to change regardless. Um, and there's only so much that Biden can do uh, to bridge that. But I think... I, I think putting more emphasis on mental health, I, I think investing in those kind of things in the country, recognizing that there are areas of the U.S. which have been left behind and trying to look at ways to create jobs and investment. I think back to some of the things that happened during the New Deal, where there was a lot of investment in infrastructure, which certainly the U.S. could use, um, where they could get people back to work, do some of those things. But I, I think he has to distance himself from the kind of rhetoric that calls Trump's followers uh, deplorables and and just marginalizes them further. Okay. Um, Mary Shillington has a comment. It seems to me that some Americans are looking for a saver or a wise ruler who can do nothing wrong. Hence Trump, Trump's great following who are still walking with him post-election and then terry shillington follows that up with a question i'm continually amazed at the number of women of all ages who support trump so enthusiastically can you comment please okay well i'll first say that i think that part of the support that trump has got around this idea that he's somehow god sent to protect things has been fed into by the fact that he has been uh, saying things that are pro-life oriented, that he has been uh, particularly having policies that are more anti-Muslim immigration. And, and on the surface, he certainly gives a lot of rhetoric to support Christianity and, and those kind of things, even though I, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that he's necessarily a person who's highly invested in it himself. Um, and and I, I do think, you know, I've commented a little bit on certainly on women's support of him. I think that there's, it is a bit bizarre. <laughs> and there's probably an element of internalized depression um, in that, there are performances of femininity that support patriarchal dominance. These are called hegemonic femininity or emphasized femininities. And I think that certainly they're, they're promoted in certain spheres and certainly within certain uh, Christian churches, they're very emphasized. And, and I think that I think people have been incredibly indoctrinated uh, throughout their upbringing to, to take sort of this, this position and and uh, the subordinate position. So I think I think this this plays in a part as well. Okay, we have um, Jessia with a very long question. Uh, a lot of this is due to the dominance of capitalism, which exasperates inequality and division. It also seems that changes in economic systems happen alongside shifts in global power. Consider the movement from colonial exploitation led by the British Empire to a more deeply industrialized and global capitalism with America at its fore. I suppose my question is, 
Are we going to have to shift our economic system considerably to deal with the entrenched political divisions like that? And do we have to sacrifice American dominance to do it or to do so? Okay. Well, there's a lot of elements to that question. Um, I do think that America is going, just like a lot of Western countries, are going to have to come to terms with the fact that they are not going to be on top as much as they once were. There's a redistribution of power in the world, um, and it's not that it's democratic. Uh, but it's all colonial powers had all all this head start because of their role in colonial countries. Um, but other countries are starting to catch up. In terms of capitalism, I I think that I if we look at the work of the French economist uh, Thomas Piketty um, and some other people who've looked at capitalism, is the tendency of capitalism is to unrestrained capitalism tends to lead to more inequality um, because basically those who have the means of production will get a bigger return then growth will happen for people in, in in terms of their own financial well-being. So I would lean towards the idea of more regulated capitalism, which is what Piketty would recommend as well, uh, where we recognize that, that unrestrained capitalism doesn't actually help the common person very much, um, that there needs to be some redistribution of wealth. And, and certainly... The irony, I think, is is the time that people in the U.S. and even Canada look to as being kind of the golden age, the 50s and 60s, that was a time when there was the most redistribution of wealth. The tax rates for people in the U.S. coming out of the Second World War who were high earners were incredibly high. And that redistribution actually led to success of society in general and a greater sense of equality and possibility. And the greater potential for upward mobility. Right now, the that situation is worsening, and I do think that if countries don't address it, and unfortunately the U.S. has been the leader in this under the International Monetary Fund in pushing neoliberal policy, um, if they don't address it, I think we're going to see increasing tensions, and I and I'm very concerned about. The consequences that could have for societies in general and and also for world peace um and throw in climate refugees and other things it's going to going to further intensify that so i think that the nordic models are certainly you know i i know that somebody who was a trump supporter would just call me a left leftist academic promoting that but the nordic models are actually very successful models unfortunately they too have been eroded by neoliberalism in recent years and and we're starting to see some downsides related to that okay um it's uh one it's 1106 um so we've gone over a little bit over time there's one more question are you okay with that it just popped up oh, absolutely no yeah problem. we'll keep it short um alan friesen you're you state the importance of men's mental health. Men abuse of women, men abuse of women and children are ACE, A-C-E, ACEs. Oh, adverse child experience. People struggling, in quotes, unresolved ACEs experience for harder lives. Do you agree? 
I'm I'm trying to exactly get clear on exactly what's being asked, but I think um, I think certainly people who've had adverse childhood experiences, it's going to affect their mental health and well-being and uh, moving forward. I think certainly in commenting about addressing men's mental health, I I do not wish to take away from the importance of addressing the mental health of all people and i don't wish to make excuses for these men's behavior um i think that in my mind there's never an excuse for violence uh or abuse of anybody i do think though that what we've basically set up with the gender structure we have in society which of course fed into patriarchy which is the idea that somehow men are supposed to be these strong, strong people who don't need anybody else, who, who are sort of criticized if they don't, if, if they show any signs of needing support or weakness or vulnerability. I think it creates a certain cycle of problems. So I'm not, I think we have to address mental health collectively in society and i think we do need to address um we do need to address men's violence against women and children and men's violence in society um but i would also say that as part of that it can't just be about punishment it all has to be about understanding the origins of it um because this is part of the problem uh, is that if a man is violent, he might get a psychiatric di- diagnosis of, uh, you know, antisocial personality disorder or something like that. But what's the, the root of the violence? It could be underlying sadness, underlying depression. And some of that's related to their childhood experiences. Sometimes it's related to their socialization. Sometimes it's related to other things as well that have happened throughout their lives. Um, but I think that mental health in general is something we need to pay attention to in society i i I think we're we're coming to terms with that more and more and and i do think i'll kind of leave maybe leave with this even though it's a slight departure social media plays a part on this as well because it could have been when anybody was feeling subordinated in the past they may have lived within a poor community. So mainly what they saw around them was people who were experiencing, having similar experiences. And yes, they might've had interaction with people who had more, but now with our global media, whether it be through internet or, or TV or anything else, it's constantly being put in people's faces of what they don't have. And they're constantly being told that they need to be successful, that they, they should have this, they should have that. And so I think it's accelerating the, mental health challenge seeing that in terms of social media use um and yeah and so i it could be because i watched the documentary the social dilemma last night but uh, but i think that that's also a thing playing into it as well i hope i answered the question excellent um We have quite a few thank yous and uh, great answers to your question today from Anthony Davis. Thank you from Belinda Croson, uh, Jim Miller, Laura Schultz, Beth Mundell. Thank you very much, Peter, for clarifying such a complex issue. Terrific presentation. 
So, um, and of course, um, as SACPA, we thank you very much for the time here that you spent with us. It was really excellent presentation. And um, to everybody watching, I hope you'll join us again uh, next week uh, with Dr. Paul Ferry out of Calgary. What did the 2020 US election results tell us about American voters? Thanks very much, and we'll end the live stream here today. Bye-bye. Thank you very much.